Welcome to Radio Free Culture from WFMU, where we examine issues at the intersection of digital media and the arts. My name is Cheyenne Homan, and in this episode, we'll be talking with Kristen Thompson, the co-director of the Music Revenue Streams Project, a study researched by the Future of Music Coalition. Hi, my name is Kristen Thompson. I'm uh, the co-director of the Future of Music Coalition's Artist Revenue Streams Project, and I've been with Future of Music Coalition pretty much since it started. Um, I've done a number of things over the years, from organizing events to doing educational materials to doing presentations and speaking as part of the FMC work. Cool. So you've been working on the Artist Revenue Streams Project for many years, I think. That's right. We started it, the, the idea of it began in 2010, it became kind of obvious to us that we really needed to gather some reliable information and data directly from musicians because there's oftentimes assumptions made about how musicians make money in the digital age, but there'd never been any effort to collect a lot of information directly from a large amount of U.S.-based musicians. So that was the reason we did the work, and we've been doing the work and doing the analysis since 2011. Wow. So how many musicians would you say you've uh, spoken to? We used three different methods to collect data from musicians. We did over 80 in-person interviews with a variety of musicians, some doing jazz, classical, freelance work, um, sound installations, session work, people who were just songwriters, people who were just composers that didn't perform. And um, that was really helpful in not only understanding what was going on, but also um, helping us to make sure that when we move to the next phase of analysis that we were best prepared. So the next uh, method we used, which was a big online survey that we did in the fall of 2011 that was um, completed by over 5,300 U.S.-based musicians and composers. And the third way we collected information was we did financial case studies. And so there was a smaller group of musicians that gave us access to their financial records, um, their income and expenses over time based on the kind of work they do as a musician. And we were able to construct uh, time series based snapshots of these seven different financial case studies. And they're really interesting because they look at very different musician types. You know, there's a, you know, a jazz band leader and there's a jazz sideman and there's a person who's um, a member of a big orchestra and there's someone who does vocal session work in Los Angeles. So they're really interesting at how different they are. Yeah, that's that's incredible. So you said they're all U.S. based. So this this data is specific geographically to kind of the environment that people are working in here. There's a reason for that, too, not only because we had to worry about our capacity as two researchers and a, with a small group of people around us supporting the work, but also that the way musicians make money from their compositions and their sound recordings and even some some of some of them have to do with their performances is kind of a sovereign affair. It's U.S. copyright law determines a lot of how the money flows and in what way and through which mediums and which conduits. And and it's different in other countries. So for us to construct a survey instrument that would be useful for um, another country would be, it would be a different question set just to, because it would reflect what the laws are there. So we had to sort of focus on America, which is a really big population. And, you know, we're chatting with other researchers in other countries to see if we can do comparative work. 
Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Um, so do you want to talk a bit about some of the findings that you've come across? Sure. Um, the The biggest takeaway is actually quite meta, if you will. The biggest one is really that the way that musicians make money in this current environment really depends on the roles they play and less and and a little bit on the genres they work in. Um, so what it looks like for, say, a session player who's working in Nashville is very different than how a rock band that's touring a lot and selling merchandise um, is making money versus how, say, a chamber music group um, that's based in New York would be operating. And I think even though that's a very kind of I don't know, it's kind of a wishy-washy answer. It's really not, because I think it's important for us as people who are interested in policymaking and in, in the building of better business models as we move forward to understand that the, there's a very large and a very diverse musical community and musical ecosystem. And there's probably not going to be one solution that solves everybody's problems. So we have to kind of think about these multiple and various stakeholders as we move ahead and recognize that there's going to be a lot of different ways that musicians construct their career. Yeah. So do you have these breakdowns by genre or role sort of outlined anywhere in your research? Yes. Yeah, you do. On our website at money.futureofmusic.org, we've released about uh, 22, I think, different data memos. And they look at this collected data through various lenses. So uh, we looked quite a bit at jazz musicians, and but we also looked at the um, at various uh, like revenue streams themselves. Like we, there's a whole report on the sound recording income because people talk a lot about how things have changed for the sale of sound recordings and how that affects how musicians make money from the sale of sound recordings. We've also looked at whether radio airplay matters and whether where you live matters to the kind of money you make and how it's changing over time. So. I encourage people to look at the various data memos and also at the financial case studies, which allowed us to um, not only look at the income side for these very select group of six or seven musicians that gave us access to their financial records, but also at the expenses. Um, it's really hard to ask survey questions about how much money people spend. It's just there's too many variables and it's really tough to ask questions. So with the financial case studies, you can see how expenses look and whether these musicians are having a net income, profit or loss, you know? Yeah, that's such a huge amount of data. Um, yeah. I'm impressed that you've been able to, to shake it down and, and come up with some conclusions about it. So clearly, I mean, the biggest player in changing the way that musicians make money has, has been the web, like mm -hmm. undeniably. So do you want to talk a little bit about how the internet has changed revenue streams? Sure. There are some obvious things that have happened on this landscape that most of your listeners will have recognized immediately. But then there's some that are less um, less obvious, and I'll just mention a few. So the big ones are that clearly musicians these days, there's way more platforms on which to make your music available. You know, prior to 1998, there was retail stores and there was some radio, and if you were part of a very select group, you maybe got played on commercial radio, or else maybe you would sell your records at a show to your fans that were there. But now, you know, because of the growth of platforms like iTunes and uh, Beats and Spotify and Rhapsody and SoundCloud and Bandcamp, there are way more ways for musicians to make their music available as either a download or a stream or sort of bundled together with other stuff. So that's an obvious development. Um, the second part is not only is it the way more ways to make your music available, it's way easier 
to get your music into those platforms. You know, with things like SoundCloud or things like Bandcamp, it's really just like, hey, I'll start an account and I'll build my page or I'll just upload it here. You know, it's pretty simple and sometimes free. Um, and then there's uh, services like CD Baby and TuneCore that act as an aggregator that help you, say, say you have a record coming out and you want it on iTunes, they help you get your music into all these platforms for a pretty nominal fee. I mean, it's about $50. And um, you can have your music available 24-7 in global marketplace pretty easily. So better access is another benefit of what's happened with the internet. Um, and a third one is that there are more revenue streams now. Um, I mean, copyright law really hasn't changed a whole lot, but some of these new business models have meant that they're kind of um, using the existing copyright law to create new revenue sources. And the best example is webcasting for uh, services like Pandora or uh, SiriusXM. There is a revenue stream, some money, some royalties that flow back to both the featured artist and the sound recording copyright owner. And that was because of a change in copyright law in the mid-90s. But it has generated, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in revenue and in royalties that go back to featured artists and sound recording copyright owners that didn't exist before. So that's a third benefit of how the internet has changed the landscape. But there are changes that also, there's been a lot of disruption of the marketplace and how things operated in the past. And so we can't just say it's all fantastic stuff. I mean, I mentioned earlier that the barriers to entry into this digital marketplace are really low now. If you can have your music available and you can just pay a nominal fee, you can have it upon all these different platforms and sites. But this means that it's remarkably competitive because there's really very little stopping everybody from putting up their music. So not only is it way more competitive for musicians to sort of grab the attention of listeners and hopefully get them to pay for something, you're competing with the entire history of recorded music because everything's available now. Nothing goes out of print. And um, you're also competing with all the other digital things that are out there in the world for us to consume our time, like video games, YouTube, podcasts. All of it is now consuming more, more of our sort of daytime sort of ear share, whatever that word is that people use, the d amount of time we spend um, listening and and watching things. I know a lot of people just run into choice fatigue with that now and, and just kind of just go back to the same things. <laughs> yep. And another thing that has definitely changed is that iTunes in about 2003, when they were launching the iTunes Music Store, when Apple was launching the iTunes Music Store, they had a proposition to the big record labels, which was, we would like to sell singles. And what it has meant is that it's now way easier to just buy the thing you want to listen to, the hit. But this has been, um, this has meant that music has become unbundled. And, you know, this is a big shift in how music has been sold in the past, especially in the past 20 years, where um, the album format and the concept of retail retailers selling albums for a certain price was how the whole music business <laughs> made money. And also how people who wrote songs made money because if you were the composer of a track on a really famous record, you would benefit from the mechanical royalties from the sale of the album, um, even if you didn't write the hit. So there's been a big shift in 
the mechanical royalty payments structure, the mechanical royalties still exist and they're still the same price now, but composers, now that the, the sort of album has been unbundled, um, composers and songwriters say that their mechanical royalties have dropped a lot because unless you wrote the hit, you may not be benefiting from the sale of the music. There's also a, a really fascinating thing because of this shift to digital consumption and also just to listening to music, the way that the money flows and the royalties getting back to the right people for various listens is increasingly dependent on proper metadata and proper attribution. And that's a fancy way of saying that the album credits that showed who played what and where it was recorded and what year it was recorded, all that stuff that was really fun to, to read as you were listening to albums, if you ever cared about that stuff, is now much more important to document properly and to attach to the music that's being listened to or played because there's these micro payments that are going to get split up and hopefully the rivulets of money will pass properly back to the people who are owed that money. This wasn't really a problem in the past because things went out of print. Like, you know, a retailer would be carrying the hits and some catalog and maybe just some classic records, you know, but then some other stuff just didn't, wasn't available. So now that things are available again, we're sort of playing catch up and trying to understand how to make sure that everything's properly attributed, that the data that's attached to the music is appropriate and right, so that the right people can be compensated down the line. So <laughs> these, are, these are new challenges that are coming up, and I, the music community is certainly working on it. In the 1990s, I ran a little independent record label with my friend Jenny Toomey. And um, one of the things we did as we were, you know, selling our music to various distributors is that you spend a lot of time trying to get paid when your music was sold. And it was usually a 60 to 90 day period where you would have sold your records to a distributor and then you kind of hassled them a little bit to get paid. And those kind of things, if you're just dealing with digital distribution, are, have kind of faded away because if things are sold on iTunes or streamed on various services, your aggregator usually sends you a, a digital report, you know, whether it's every month or every couple of weeks, and it shows you in great detail how many times your things were streamed or purchased as a download, and all the reputable aggregators will pay you on a monthly basis based on what the consumption was. So there's no more hassling phone calls. <laughs> and so that's kind of a different um, outcome, but I think that it's way easier to get paid and for you to understand how things have been purchased or listened to than in the past. Because it was a bit of a mystery before, and it was also a little bit of a hassle. Yeah, it seems like there are still mysteries involved in that process, but I'm sure a lot of people appreciate the the shift from a, a list of numbers to call to some sort of automated or or semi-automated system. Yeah, it was sometimes it was, it was just a person at mm -hmm. a record shop or at a distributor. Like, are you gonna you you know have you sold all those records? Because <laughs> I'd like to get paid for that. <laughs> you know, so you could go on and do your next thing. The other fascinating thing that's happened is that it's way easier for musicians and little indie labels now to have direct contact with the fans and the listeners, the people who like your music. When we were running Simple Machines, we ran our own mail order We had, um, and we were in a band that toured. So we were in contact with lots and lots of fans and people who listened to the music, and that was fantastic. But now, I mean, with social media, with reports from various services like Pandora even, 
it's much easier to understand where your listeners are and also to discover places where you might have not known that you had listeners. But not only is it easier, but I feel like it's almost more necessary for artists and for labels to have direct connections with their fans, not only just to sort of keep your presence, but it also gives you a chance to make a stronger connection with various listeners. And then you can offer them things like, would you like to pre-purchase the album? Or, hey, we're going to be on tour. We'll be coming through your city. Um, Here's a link to the place where you can buy a ticket. They can do premium offerings like, would you like to do a house concert with me? Especially for bands that have less label support, having direct connections with fans reduces the gap between you and the listener, which is fantastic, but it's also more necessary to have that direct connection, which also adds to the musician's workload. So there's these there's this trade-off here between, you know, the excitement and the possibility that comes with being able to connect directly with fans, but also the added workload of being present, always present, and always thinking about how to best manage those relationships you have with your fans. Another interesting one that sometimes happens in, especially in the band world where bands are touring a lot, is that there's an increased presence of corporate money. Because if you were signed to a, a, a even a mid-sized or a larger label, oftentimes they would offer tour support to the bands that had signed to their label so that the bands would have some financial support to pay for a tour bus or pay for a person to tour manage. Um, I have heard, although I cannot verify, I've heard that tour support has been reduced um, because the labels have less money, but um, there are new opportunities for bands to find other sources of income to support their tours. And sometimes that's corporate funding or sponsorships that support a tour, whether it's like a shoe company or a uh, clothing company or a a beverage. Um, You see them supporting festivals, but also supporting bands directly. Um, and sometimes that's in the absence of other places to find money for their tours. So, The sort of branding and brand affiliation was something that a lot of people commented on for this year's South by Southwest as being a, a very prominent element of that festival where it, it hadn't been as much in the past. So, Sure. It's certainly changed over the years. I think this year wasn't a particularly watershed moment because I, I do remember going a few years back and feeling like the corporate presence was inescapable at that time. And Mm -hmm. I know that it's just sort of increased over the years and also morphed in a way because South by Southwest Interactive has really brought more corporate entities into this sphere. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I mean, there's, but there's all sorts of corporate money involved in music, whether it's supporting tours or festivals, or there's places that are supporting recording studios. There's brands that are excited to to have sort of branded YouTube channels. Um, You know, there's all sorts of ways that corporations and music are are interwoven these days. So the the musicians we talk to in the artist revenue streams are sometimes, um, you know, it's sort of like a strategic decision, like how how comfortable are you with um, these kinds of relationships? Sometimes it's it seems fine, and sometimes artists are really not interested in it. So, you know, musicians have to sort of figure that out on their own. Another interesting development that I'm not sure people think about very much, but I find fascinating, is that on platforms like Bandcamp, 
and even on artists' own websites, it's now possible for bands to offer bundled sets of things, like a vinyl copy of your record, plus a t-shirt, and maybe a digital download code so you can get an MP3 version of your album, all for sort of one price. And on platforms like Bandcamp, offer variable pricing. And those kind of options were almost impossible to do unless you were actually at the merchandise table at your own show. The internet makes it so much easier to order merchandise in general. I mean, that's part of why it so, so, has such staying power, I think, is because it's so good for business in a lot of ways. So, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so to sort of wrap it up, you can kind of think of these changes as a double-edged sword. You know, there's, I would say, that a lot of people that we talked to felt empowered by the changes. They felt like they had more control over their career. They didn't have to relinquish copyrights in order to participate in the marketplace. They felt like it was great they could have a direct connection with fans. It created greater efficiencies. You know, the internet itself and email and all those things makes it possible to collaborate with fans or talk to European promoters, whatever it is. You know, those, those things are like the basic efficiencies of the internet. But, you know, on the other side, it has atomized income streams that were formerly really sort of reliable, you know, just the things that used to cost $15 or $10 wholesale, like a, an album, is now a single, and it's a percentage of a single. The support structures are changing for the music industry. We just talked about corporate sponsorship as being a new entrant in the field. It's more competitive than ever. It's more competitive both against um, all recorded music, but also against all the other options that people have as far as how to fill their time. And I think all this together means that there's new workloads for musicians, especially the ones that are trying to be self-sufficient. You have new responsibilities. You have new decisions to make about how you operate your career, if you will. There's a lot of different options, but there's a lot more risk if you're out there trying to do things on your own without a whole lot of support structures. So it is really a double-edged sword. I mean, there's tons of opportunity but there's also tons of, you know, sort of uncertainty about how it can, how it can work. Um, so this is like the, the thing that we found with the musicians, when we, especially when we asked them on our artist revenue streams about thinking back over the past five years, how have emerging technologies and the internet affected their musical career? And it really did show this seesaw. It said, like, they're very excited about being able to communicate with fans directly, but it's more competitive than ever, you know? And I'm excited to manage my career myself, but my day-to-day -day work is more about promotion than creation. So I think that the landscape is changing. And so today's musicians are trying to figure out how to navigate this and how to be strategic and how to be smart about how they're operating in this new environment. Yeah, do you have any advice or recommendations for resources for artists who are kind of in this position? There are lots of books and blogs and magazines and um, web resources available. Um, Future of Music Coalition, we try and do some things to help musicians understand the landscape in the broadest sense. So we have some infographics and we have some resource pages and fact sheets on our website at futureofmusic.org. And we also have the Artist Revenue Streams work, which is um, meant to inform musicians about how musicians are making money these days. And we're about to actually uh, launch, if you will, um, uh, a new part of the artist revenue streams work, which will be this data dashboard that is going to 
allow users to sort of look at the survey data through various filters. You'll be able to set the filters by genre and role and by full-time versus not full-time musicians. So we're a few weeks away from that. Um, but, you know, that's just Future Music Coalition. There's plenty of other resources available. I guess one question that I'm going to ask that is also kind of meta, I guess, to bring us back to the beginning, is um, that this is just like part of the story arc of how musicians have been able to get their music out there and be compensated fairly. So like, where do you think or hope it'll go next? We've been through this, say, 12 to 15 year phase that basically started in 2002 when the iTunes Music Store launched and became a viable thing. Like, oh, look, we can actually sell music digitally. Um, And because of that, the sort of growth and maturation of services like CD Baby and TuneCore to help musicians manage or, you know, sort of navigate these things. So now that those transitions have happened and now we're entering this new streaming phase, um, I feel like the next phase is actually for musicians to realize that a lot more of their music is dependent on <laughs> on proper attribution and metadata. So there's this sort of um, administrative task that has to happen as, as you're creating, creating and distributing new music. So there's that. But I think the services themselves also need to realize that there can't just be 20 million tracks up in the sky. Um, it will have to be more human curation. There'll have to be more thoughtful ways to introduce listeners to different types of music. I feel like people sometimes brush off radio, but I feel like radio is equally, if not more important than it's ever been. And I feel like the online services can learn from radio about what works and how to program things in an interesting way. So I feel like the next phase will be how to better do some hand-holding to introduce listeners to stuff beyond the hits. So how can we you know, learn more about the history of various players or how can we explore various subgenres? You know, how can we ensure that people can get introduced to this huge wealth of music that's been created? That issue of choice fatigue is one that you've addressed here. That, and that's one that I think a lot of people are struggling with in the digital era and, and just being at a loss for what to look at next or to look for next. So, Absolutely. Yeah. I, feel like, so I feel like that's part of the next phase. And there are, there's also just, we can't forget that for a lot of musicians, the opportunity to go out on tour and play live is still an important part of their income stream. And so there's, there's always going to be that. I enjoy going to live shows. I know that not every musician plays live, and oftentimes composers and songwriters aren't live performers at all. But I do think that live shows are and will continue to be an important part of the music ecosystem just because I think fans just love going to shows. So there's that too. Do you have anything else that you'd like to add? I don't have any more questions, really. Um, You can find out more about Artist Revenue Stream's work at money.futureofmusic.org, which not only includes data memos and financial case studies, but also a lot about the research project itself and um, a list of the 42 revenue streams that we use to construct our research model and, and the list that a lot of people have come to because of the work that tries to encapsulate all the ways you can make money from your compositions, sound recording, performances, or your brand. All right. Thanks very much. Well, thank you. All right. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Radio Free Culture is produced by WFMU. 
and the Free Music Archive, and is supported in part by a grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. Our theme song this week is The Spider-Man's Nano Loop by Uncle Bibby and can be found at freemusicarchive.org. For more information about artist revenue streams and much more, please visit futureofmusic.org.